It's wonderful to be here this morning. Again, we want to say we appreciate all of you being here today, especially if you're considering yourself a visitor this morning. I see a a few unfamiliar faces in the crowd. We're very happy that you're here, and we hope that you will enjoy our services this morning. If you're going to follow along this morning with your own Bible, we're going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. You're not going to stray away from that too often, so I'll have all the scriptures up on the screen this morning, uh, the New King James Version, but if you want to follow along, Hebrews chapter 6, where we're going to kind of get nice and cozy this morning. I was doing some studying here recently in Hebrews 6 and came across a, a passage that I'd never really studied before and started digging into it and didn't really quite know what it meant. I asked a, a, a few of the brethren around here what they thought, and we had some discussions, so I decided the best way to figure out is just to dig into this chapter. Um, and as I continued to do that, I, I came across another passage that really kind of stuck out at me as sort of like a, a bumper sticker type statement, if you will, and that's in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 9. The scripture says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And this verse just kind of had a ring to it that I kind of liked, though at, when you first glance at this passage on its own, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I was curious about these better things the writer was talking about. By the way, this morning we're going to assume that the writer of Hebrews is the Apostle Paul, um, and we may go back and forth between saying Paul or the writer, but that's what we're going to assume this morning. Um, so why was the writer, or Paul, confident of these better things that were coming ahead for the people he was writing to, uh, that, that, that accompany their salvation? Why does he say, though we speak in this manner, what does that mean? And when we talk about studying our Bible a lot of times, um, I know we've heard like people say the words like hermeneutics or exegesis, and, and when it comes to, to interpreting the Bible and, and rightly dividing the word, and the, the word that really I think is most useful when it comes to studying the Bible is context. We want to make sure that we're taking verses in the correct context, and we have a lot of verses that we use um, sort of like I said, like bumper sticker statements like John 3.16 or Acts 2.38, verses like that that really jump out of us and have a special meaning for us. But those verses can have more meaning when you put them in context as to what is actually being taught. Who is saying it? Who, is it, who are they saying it to? What are we trying to get across here? Does this apply directly to us or is it just a lesson that we can learn? And so as I began backing my way from several verses, I ended up at this verse, and I just kept backing up all the way to the beginning of, of Hebrews chapter 6. And maybe I should have gone all the way just to the beginning of Hebrews and started there, but I think Hebrews chapter 6 is a good starting point to learn what I want to get across this morning. So we want to start there in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning of verse number 1. The writer says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So this chapter begins with this concept of spiritual maturity versus, I believe, spiritual stagnation or even a falling away, as we'll get to here in a minute. Paul says we want to leave these things behind, leaving these principles behind. The word therefore is another indicator that you've got some context to go on. At the end of chapter 5, he talks about those that should have been teachers at this point, but were still having the basics need to be taught to them. They were still drinking the milk and, and not ready for the strong meat, like a baby that won't you know, let you take its bottle away and start giving it solid food. That's something we know about at our house with our, with our picky eaters that, that we have. The kid's not ready for the stronger meat, right? Well, what he's saying here is building upon that. 
let's leave these principle discussions, these discussions of elementary principles behind. And he's not trying to belittle or say that these things aren't important because they are. He says you lay these foundation, things like repentance and faith towards God and the doctrine of baptism and resurrection of the dead, you know, eternal judgment. These are foundational elements, fundamentals, if you will, of Christianity that are very, very important. You know, when we hear the word fundamental, and a lot of the world talks about fundamentalists, it's never in a positive light that I've heard. You hear people on the news with agendas, and they're talking about Christian fundamentalists, and it's always in a negative context, right? These narrow-minded bigots, they don't, they're, they're just, all they want to do is talk about the Bible. They don't want to have new ideas. They don't want to be progressive in their thinking. And so when we hear the word fundamentalist, it's always in a negative context. That's not what the writer is saying here. He's not trying to cast a negative light on the fundamentals of Christianity. What he's saying, we have to build on that. You know, when I played basketball in high school, I'm sure it's like this in every, every town, but in Pampa, our basketball coach, he really stressed the little things. He stressed the basics. I see Brad smiling back there because he remembers. It's the little things, guys. That's what he always said. We practice drills and drills and drills, passing, shooting, playing defense, dribbling. And we worked on those things, and we worked on those things. And he wanted us in the gym all the time because he wanted those things to become second nature to us. Because the fundamentals of basketball are necessary if you want to be a good basketball player. But if that's all you work on, you'll never have a good basketball team because you've got to learn how to play with each other. You've got to learn how to move without the ball. You've got to learn how to set screens. You've got to learn how to run a full-court press. All these things come together to make a good basketball team. But the fundamentals are necessary. But eventually, you've got to leave the fundamentals and learn, learn more things if you want to be a good basketball team. That's exactly what Paul is telling us in this chapter. This is a foundation that you've laid. Faith towards God, repentance, baptism, all these things are critical and necessary to a new Christian, but it's just a foundation. You know, if we, I remember when we laid the foundation to this building. We came out here and it's just a concrete pad, and there was something very exciting about that. There was a, a tangibilization, if you will. I know that's not a word, but that's, that's the only thing I can think of to describe it. It was tangible. It was happening. Everybody was so excited. But here we are, seven-plus years later, and if we were still here and it was just still a concrete pad, there'd be a little head-scratching going on. Why aren't we building on this foundation? And that's what Paul is telling us here. You've got to build on the foundation, leave these things behind, move on. You need to mature as a Christian. Then he tells us why. He says, for it is impossible, in verse 4, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So I've heard a lot of teaching on this previous passage, and I've heard a lot of teaching on this passage, but I've rarely heard them put together, and they go hand in hand so well. Because what he's saying here is it's time to move on, it's time to grow, it's time to mature, because if you don't, this is going to happen. You're going to fall away. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. That's why it's so important for us to mature. And he talks about a new Christian, someone who has tasted, had a little taste of that heavenly gift. Someone that's been a partaker of the Holy Spirit and just had a little glimpse or a taste of the Word of God. A little glimpse into what eternity might be like and what this whole thing's about. 
But if we don't build on that, then that little glimpse is all we're ever going to have. And a person that falls away from that, the momentum of that fall is so great that it's almost impossible to reverse. It's almost impossible to bring that back. And the word impossible there, I don't think necessarily means literally impossible because I've, I've known people who have walked away from the church and come back, and I'm sure you have too, but it's very, very hard. Once that momentum starts of a falling away, it's hard to renew them. They crucified themselves the Son of God again and put him to an open shame. That's some pretty strong language there. But this is what happens when we don't grow and mature as a Christian. We fall away because if we're not moving forward, we're moving backwards. He goes on in Hebrews 6, verse 7, For the earth, which drinks in the rain, often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for, useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So here he's kind of giving us an example of how do you grow and mature? What is involved in that to, to at least a small degree? He talks about the rain. And he says the rain that often comes upon it, that word often doesn't really apply to us in West Texas, doesn't rain nearly as often as we'd like it to, but when it does rain, we appreciate it. And we understand this concept that the the dry ground just soaks in that rain. And the ground doesn't care what kind of plants are on it. It's just going to soak in the nutrients, and it's going to supply that to the plants that are on it, and those plants are going to grow. And we, you know, a lot of times we, we go through droughts, in the panhandle, and the ground gets all brown and dirty and nasty. Then we get a big rain, and you drive along the highway. Wow, there's actually green grass. You know, that's kind of cool to see green grass as we drive down the highway. And, of course, it's nothing compared to, to places like, you know, North Texas around the Dallas area that get rain all the time or maybe over in Oklahoma. And the greenness is not quite the same, but still we appreciate that and we understand it. But here's the thing. The ground doesn't care what kind of plant is on it. It's going to grow what's ever there. He talks about this process of cultivation. And I'm not a farmer. I married a, a, a farmer's daughter, I guess, but I don't know a whole lot about farming. I get a little bit just from osmosis from the family. But I know that when cotton farmers go to, they go and they plow the field and they bring what's called a cultivator through. And I don't even know what it does, but it prepares the ground, right? It cultivates the ground and makes it ready to receive the seed and to receive water and to grow cotton. That's what it's all about because they've cultivated the ground for that. But if we don't cultivate the ground, chances are it's just a bunch of weeds and stickers are going to grow there, right? And that's what he's telling us. Our spiritual maturity is very directly related to how we cultivate our own hearts, how we prepare ourselves to receive the Word of God, or whether we prepare ourselves at all for that. But if we go in and we remove all the junk from our lives, we remove all the things from our heart that don't belong there. We make room and we make ourselves open and willing to receive the word of God just like a ground drinking in the rain. Then what happens is that it is the fruit of something that is very useful in the kingdom of God. As opposed to this thing that is rejected near to being cursed and whose end is to be burned. And so he's explaining to us the importance of maturing as a Christian. What happens if that doesn't happen and how we go about doing that. We cultivate our hearts in order to receive the word of God and be useful in his kingdom rather than something that is near to being cursed. That brings us back to the verse we started with this morning, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, and it makes so much more sense to us now. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So what he's saying is, hey, though we've spoken in this sort of negative manner about bad things happening to those who fall away, we are confident of better things for you. 
concerning you, that things that accompany salvation. We know this is not going to happen. We have confidence in that. We, think, we know there are better things coming for you. Now, I don't believe this confidence is misplaced or even just lip service. I believe Paul is truly confident in him. He's not pandering because he goes on in the next verse to, to say why he believes that. He says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So, the confidence that Paul has in them is not unfounded. He says, I see and God sees the work you've been doing. Your work and your labor of love that you've shown towards his name. You have basically, you, you have glorified the name of God because of your work and your labor of love. You've ministered to the saints. You continue to minister to the saints. He says, God is not unjust to forget that. God sees that happening in your life. You know, I know a lot of times it's in this culture that we live in of instant gratification. It's very easy for that to creep into our lives. We have a culture that they want it, and they want it now, and they want it the way they want it. And it's so easy for us to let that creep into our lives as Christians. That's a very dangerous attitude for a Christian to have. If you're, if you're not willing to play the long game, Christianity is not the game for you. Because we get, sometimes we get frustrated and we get, you know, we get downtrodden, we get discouraged because we think, well, what is this even accomplishing? This work that we do, is it affecting anything? Is it even accomplishing anything in my life or anybody else's life? And we often don't see immediate results from our service to God. Sometimes we do, but a lot of times we don't. We have to wait on God sometimes. And that's hard to do. It's hard for us to be patient. But what he's telling them here is God notices. I don't want you to forget that, that God notices what you're doing. He sees the work you're doing. And he goes on to say, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. I want you to keep it up. I don't want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to have diligence. I want you to have the full assurance of the hope that you have. This is the first time the word hope appears in this chapter. And I want to take notice of it. Because the hope that is talked about here is not like somebody saying, Oh, I hope I win the lottery. I hope that happens someday. Because that's really not a hope. What they're saying is, I wish I could win the lottery. That'd be kind of nice if I could win the lottery. But they, nobody ever really believes that's going to happen to them. People say, well, you, it's got to happen to somebody. It's true, but it won't happen to me because, number one, I don't play. And number two, th those things never happen to me. <laughs> that's, it's the Westbrook's curse is what I like to call it. If something good's going to happen, it's going to happen to somebody else. Regardless, that's not the kind of hope we're talking about here. The hope that we have is something real. It's something tangible. It's an earnest expectation of what God is going to do for us. And we can believe that. And we don't become, he says that you do not become sluggish in verse 12, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So he says, I want you to not be sluggish. I want you to be diligent. I want you to keep moving forward. And look at all the examples that we have in the scriptures that show us people who played the long game and who are willing to do that. For these people, that was somebody in the Old Testament, and he goes to the example of Abraham in verse number 12. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So 
We go to the example of Abraham, who as a book that is addressed called the book of Hebrews. This audience knows who Abraham is, right? And he says, I want you to look and imitate the example of Abraham. Remember the promise that God made to him. And what he's referencing here is back in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 17. This is immediately following uh, when God had told Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham went to do that and was stopped by God and a ram was provided for the sacrifice. Verse 15 says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you. Multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, so forth and so on. So this, he's just relating the promise, reminding them of something they already knew, that God made this promise to Abraham and he swore on himself. To do that. So let's talk about oaths for just a minute because I think it's pretty interesting how we as a human race look at oaths and what those mean for us. While we take them so seriously, he says in the previous verse, an oath for confirmation, or he says, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So what he's saying there is when we make an oath, we always swear on something greater than ourselves, right? And for some reason that carries more weight than if I was just to say, I promise. You know, when Jesus talked to the the people about swearing oaths and things like that, he said, just let your your yea be yea and your nay be nay. But for whatever reason, we as a a people give weight to an oath. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I took Jackson down to the DPS office to get his his learner's permit. And you want to talk about tests of patience in in many ways. Uh, Just the process of all the hoops you got to jump through is ridiculous for one thing. But when we went there and we, we submitted, you know, all 25 pieces of documentation that we had to submit in, and finally the lady said, okay, I want both of you to raise your right hand, and I want you to swear that what you've, what you've stated in these documents is true, and that you haven't falsified anything, and we did that. And I guess she was satisfied with that because we got the learner's permit. Now, what if I had said, no, I'm not going to raise my hand, you're just going to have to take my word for it. I'm guessing we don't go home with a permit that day, Right? Somebody swears or you know, takes an oath in court to tell the truth. We give weight to that. There are consequences for perjury. When a president takes the oath of office, imagine a president going there to the Capitol building and saying, put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. He's like, no, you're just going to have to take my word for it. I'm going to uphold the Constitution. I'm going to defend the Constitution. We don't accept that. We want that oath, and we give weight to that. And it's always something bigger than ourselves. The president puts his hand on the Bible he raises his right hand. And that oath is only as good as the integrity of the person that gives it. But for some reason, I promise on my mother's grave is more of a promise than I just promise. My mom doesn't have a grave. She's here this morning with us, actually. So, but y'all know what I mean, right? So, because there's no one greater than God, God swore by himself. An oath to confirm the promise that he made to Abraham. And we begin to see a little bit of why the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted in him for righteousness. Because why would you not believe the promise of God? And especially why would you not believe that promise if God made an oath to confirm it? And that's what he goes on to say in verse number 15. Oh, excuse me, verse number 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, Confirmed it by an oath. So let's stop there for just a second. So here, what he's saying is this is why God did this. He was determined, God was determined to show more abundantly, not just to make a promise, 
but to go above and beyond that promise and say, I'm giving you an oath and swearing on myself that I will keep this promise. Now, it seems weird to us to think about that God was basically doubling down here because Chris last weekend talked about the rainbow and the different covenants that God had made with us. He talked about all the promises that God had given us. We, we just believe the promises of God, right? Well, God was determined to go above and beyond that. And he doubled down and he confirmed that promise with an oath. And so he says there in verse 18 that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Let's talk about this word immutable for just a second. It simply means unchangeable, unalterable. It's fixed. So God, the immutability of his counsel, he was trying to show the unchanging nature of his counsel to Abraham. That he made a promise. So he says that by two immutable things. What are the two immutable things here? The promise and the oath. God made a promise that was unchanging. And he made an oath swearing on himself to confirm that promise. And those two things are unchangeable, immutable. And they come together for that hope. Why are they unchangeable? Why are they immutable? Because God doesn't lie. God tells the truth. It's not in his nature to tell a lie. It's impossible for God to lie. In the same sense that it's impossible for a dog to fly. It's just not in his nature. He does not lie. So therefore... When God makes a promise, and especially when he makes an oath confirming the promise, those things are immutable, they're unchangeable, and we can take it to the bank. And that's why Abraham was able to have faith and do what he did. That we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. We can lay hold of the hope that is set before us. We can have confidence in that. And that's another reason why Paul said we have confidence in better things concerning you and your salvation. Why? Because he knew the promises of God. And those promises were immutable. Continuing on now, Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, I don't, I don't know a lot about boats. I'm not what you would call nautical in any, sense of the, in any sense of the term. But I know what an anchor does. An anchor keeps a boat in place. You drop an anchor to the bottom of a lake, and the boat can only go as far as the rope or chain on that anchor lets it go. It keeps it sure. It keeps it steadfast, as he said here. It keeps it secure. And what he's saying here is Jesus Christ is that anchor. So the hope that we have because of the promises that God has made and the oath that he made to confirm it, and both of those things are immutable, you and I have a hope that is an anchor for our soul. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. He talks about Jesus entering the veil or behind the veil to the presence there. That's the presence of God. You know, when the the children of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness and as they later set up the temple in Jerusalem, the high priest would go into the temple or the tabernacle, pass through a veil that was in there, and behind that veil was the holiest of holies, or the holiest of all, where the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant sat. And they would go in there, and they would make atonement for the sins of the people. They would enter, and the the Bible says the presence of God came down and dwelt there between the cherubims on the mercy seat as they went through the wilderness. And so when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us that the veil of the temple was torn right down the middle, symbolizing Jesus entering 
behind that veil into the presence of God one final time to make atonement for the sins of the world. And that's the hope that you and I have, the promise that we have, the anchor for our soul. So as we consider this chapter, a few things that I think that we can take away. Number one, spiritual maturity and growth are critical to avoiding apostasy and stagnation. We've got to keep moving forward. If we're not moving forward, we're moving backwards. Number two, God notices when we labor in love and we patiently endure trials in our lives. No matter how discouraged we get, no matter how much we think this isn't helping or this isn't mattering, God notices. And God has promised us better things as a result of our patient endurance. We can know that better things come. We've got to be willing to play the long game. You know, speaking of playing the long game, consider Abraham and all the heroes of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. You want to talk about a long game because what we read earlier, Abraham just said, it just said that Abraham patiently endured and he just obtained the promise. Just the promise itself, not the fulfillment of that promise. He never saw the fulfillment of that promise in its true form. Many of those heroes of faith that we read about in Hebrews 11 did not receive that promise. You want to talk about playing the long game, that was them. They were looking forward to a cross that they never saw. We get to look back at the cross that's already happened. And that's an amazing gift for you and I. God has promised us better results, better things as a result of our patient endurance. We can have full confidence in these promises. Why? Because they are unchangeable. Because God does not lie. It's impossible for him to lie. And so whatever promise that God makes to us, whether that's I will never leave you nor forsake you, whether that's you will not face any temptation that you're not able to bear, whatever the case may be, we can trust in the promises of God and lay hold of the, of the hope that is set before us. We can have strong consolation that Jesus Christ is the anchor for our soul. As we consider the, the promise that God made to Abraham, I want us to remember that that promise was not just for Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, it says, In your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. You know, the promise God made to Abraham was a promise for you and I as well. That all nations of the earth should be blessed. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us how that happens. He says, To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ? I've heard a song recently. And the, the lyrics of the song go something to the effect of, We are the stars. We are the sand. We are the promise that you made to Abraham. You see, you and I in the church are seeing the fulfillment of this promise that God made thousands of years ago to Abraham. And just as Abraham was able to cling to these promises, not really ever seeing the fulfillment of them in their true form, and that is in Jesus Christ and his role as our Savior, you and I can lay hold of that as well. And I don't know what you've got going on in your life. I don't know if you've ever been obedient to the gospel. There may be some here that haven't been. I want you to understand and realize there's, a, there's a, a foundation you need to lay this morning. We talked about that. That foundation of repentance from dead works. That foundation of faith towards God. That foundation of baptism into the blood of Jesus Christ and being raised to walk in newness of life. That foundation of understanding that there's an eternal judgment to come. If you've not done that this morning, you need to lay that foundation. And then you need to start building on it. You know, we talked earlier about many times we get discouraged. 
there's a very good chance that somebody in this room right now is discouraged. That they may think, well, what I'm going through in this life, I don't know that it really matters. I don't know that I'm accomplishing anything. And if that's the case, I just want you to remember that Jesus is the anchor for your soul. I want you to remember that God is not unjust to forget what you're going through. That he sees it. And I want you to remember that you don't need to become sluggish, but continue to be diligent and overcome that. And if we can help you in that by praying for you this morning, praying with you, we want to do that. If you want to have, come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.